You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 43 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 2nd of March, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Tommy Potterton. Uh, good morning, everyone. Harrison Avery. Hello, hello. And Asha King. Nice to be back. Nice to be back. A little, little absence, and we're in a new recording studio. Or yeah. We're in, we're in Asha's living room rather than really, mine or uh, Really advanced recording studio. We have a lot of surfboards hanging up to kind of mute the acoustics. Mute the acoustics a little bit. There are a lot of puppies hanging around as well. <laughs> It's been uh, it's been it's been a couple weeks of, of puppies. So if any of the listeners can hear any background whimpering, that's just our uh, peritos. So, so you've got a new puppy, Tommy. You've got a new puppy. I've got a new puppy too. Yeah, we both just couldn't resist. I hadn't planned on getting mine this early, but I turned up. Mine's a rescue dog. I turned up to visit him one day, and he had a a really bad leg. The vets think he got hit by a a motorbike, so I just had to pick him up then and there. Yeah, we're usually talking about all the new surfboards we've picked up, but it's actually been a long time since I've picked up a new board, and I instead picked up a puppy. There we go. You guys are fully integrated now. You, you can't run away easily. Thankfully, they are <laughs> friends just about. Yeah, that helps, doesn't it? It helps a, a lot, yeah. Getting a puppy the same time as your bud, and then having the dogs end up being friends is pretty... That's a life hack right there. It's pretty good. Pretty good. So what else have you guys been up to other than, uh, other than cleaning puppy poo off the floor? Well, cleaning puppy poo is pretty time-consuming. It is. But the resort, Surf Simply, is closed at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I've been just hanging around Nassar and getting a lot of really fun waves. And I'm going to Bocas del Toro next week with my girlfriend, Lauren, and Tommy and his girlfriend. And the swell forecast is pumping. It's looking a little big. Yeah. It's <laughs> how you feel about that, Tommy? Uh, a little bit daunting, given that they're all new breaks. I haven't surfed yet, but I'm sure Asher will push me and push me and push me. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bocas del Toro isn't, like, it's not a reliable... It's fickle. It needs a little low-pressure system inside the Caribbean, which is, is not super common at this time of year. But, but you guys are going to score. I've been looking at videos of that area for a long time, and there's so many just really good, slabby setups and... Uh, looking at the surf forecast is actually really strange because uh, we're in the Pacific, and mm-hmm. when we have a good forecast, it looks something like four feet at 18 or 19 seconds, mm-hmm. and we're all licking our chops, and we know that it's going to be big and good. And uh, the surf forecast for Bocas, because it is such a small body of water, there's not the fetch to get a really long swell period. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look at the forecast, and it's nine or 10 feet at 10 seconds. Yeah, so I'm a little bit. <laughs> wow. like, what? What do I do with this? What is this? I see. It sounds more similar to what me and Tommy grew up surfing in the Atlantic, where yeah. if it, if it yeah. top if it top ten seconds, you were frothing on that. How about yourself, Harrison? What have you been up to? Um, I am not going to Bocas, unfortunately. Wish I was, but I have been doing quite a bit of filming with these two, with uh, Asher and Tommy, and I did a little bit of self reflecting while we were doing our last stretch of coaching, and and kind of thought when I go out to surf. I usually have five or ten things in my head about what I want to work on. And I've been taking a little bit of a different approach and just going out with a specific goal and and working on one or two things at a time Um, and then going through the footage that we've collected. And and I feel like it's just a a way more effective approach as far as progression goes. Um, And it's, it's been really cool just having these two also to go through the footage with and having somebody watching you that knows what to look for. And, and yeah, it's been really fun. So 
Been I found the most it of my two weeks. good while we've been filming to you know put ourselves in the shoes of our clients and start to work on things and probably share a lot of the frustrations that I'm sure they feel even when we're working on something as basic as looking in the direction we want to go and we're just getting it wrong time after time on different maneuvers. Yeah. So it's been pressing. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, video coaching is, is very brutal. Yeah. I, uh, and it, as well, because you, you really become very aware that, that there is somebody sitting on the beach watching you and there's nothing makes me surf like more of an idiot than being hyper aware of somebody watching. I'm hoping to find some little way. I'm, I'm going snowboarding next week for the first time in a long time. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping I can find some way to get a little bit of footage of myself and try and A lot of people go on snowboarding this break, huh? Yeah, well, Bruce off on a, a little snowboarding holiday. Fran's gone, Carrie Ann's, so uh, yeah. Yeah, it's quite a few, quite a few people running off to the snow. I just haven't made it to the snow in years and years and years, and I'm really excited because it seems like this La Nina weather pattern has been putting a lot of snow on the west coast of, of the US, which is where we're going. Oh, it's been a special season. It's one of those, it's like looking at the surf report for somewhere else where it's been pumping every day. Yeah. Looking at Mammoth Mountain cam, it's like, oh man, there's been so much powder this year. So going into the news, uh, Kelly Slater has been pretty dominant in the news over the last week or so. For various reasons, he released a really cool little edit of uh, his wave pool, which looks insane. It's like that old, you, you know, remember that uh, footage from George Greeno? Yeah. And it's, it's just this... The Crystal Voyager scene. The Crystal scene. Voyager scene, where it's just this barrel just peeling and peeling and peeling. I, there's not a drop of water out of place and the whole thing. It's insane. On a more serious note, a bodyboarder was attacked and unfortunately died in Reunion Island by a shark attack about a week and a half ago now, uh, which obviously is very unfortunate. There have been uh, quite a few deaths uh, and quite a few attacks from sharks in Reunion recently. That would have been a story in itself, but Kelly Slater has then weighed in and put a fairly big statement on his Instagram saying that he felt that uh, there needed to be a cull on the sharks, um, which has provoked a fair amount of backlash from a lot of the eco people that he, uh, he's been courting without a known. And yeah, I, I find it a bit crazy that he's been pretty against shark culling for his whole career. I mean, he's always been outspoken about environmental issues, but that's kind of a big one that he, he said, and he's been quoted saying, we're in the shark's habitat, so you know, obviously there's going to be some run-in sometimes, and this is just a completely alternate stance. Yeah, it's pretty weird. And uh, there's then been lots of interesting back and forths. Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd weighed in on Kelly's defense. Uh, Beach Grit did their normal thing of antagonizing everybody possible <laughs> and uh, trying to raise hell. Coincidentally, just before the attack happened, myself and Rue actually recorded an interview with uh, a shark expert on the subject of shark deterrence and, and things like that. So we'll have that interview for you later on uh, and we'll talk about it a bit more there. But yeah, this whole thing has then come up and it, it's kind of been timely in an unfortunate way, I suppose. Would I be right in saying that there's no scientific evidence that culling would reduce the problem? As far as I am aware, culling doesn't seem to have very much effect. The, the places where there have been culls and where there haven't been, it, it doesn't seem to have done much. But one of the interesting things that, that we were talking about when we were uh, interviewing Yanis was that the numbers are so low. You know, you have four or five attacks in a year. If next year you have six attacks, that's like a 50% increase in attacks. And so the, the, the number of data points is so low that you get all these sort of statistical... Nonsense stuff. Yeah, statistical nonsense. Um, and it's very, very hard to say with any certainty what does and doesn't work. 
I did do a little bit of reading about the Reunion Island attack, and um, from what I read, it it appeared that a lot of these attacks happened in areas where people had been warned not to go, mm -hmm. uh, not just specifically areas, but also times because of different weather systems or different fish in the water. So they'd been warned not to go in the water. So maybe it's not the not the sharks' fault. Reunion last year, you know, completely banned surfing in all of its waters for a while. Um, mm -hmm. I think they rescinded that further down the line, but there was no surfing at all to take place. And still to this day, there are, uh, as you say, warnings placed in, in various places where they know that there's a lot of sharks. They know there's a lot of aggressive sharks that become used to, to humans in the water and things like that. So very tricky. Finally, for Kelly Slater in this week, his company Outer Known have launched an ocean awareness campaign called It's Not Okay, and they're going to donate 100% of the profits from those sales to ocean awareness charities, which is quite cool. When Patagonia did their Black Friday event, and they, they didn't just donate the profits, they donated the sales. Like all, all the sales on Black Friday, they donated that money to environmental charities, and they raised $10 million. That's amazing. Which is pretty awesome. So, uh, yeah, out of known. Following that, it is, it is just the profits that they're doing. But nevertheless, that's pretty cool. Well, I think over the, I think Patagonia, or specifically Jan Schonard, started the 1% for the Planet Initiative about 20 or 30 years ago. And it's been really, really successful. Yeah, very cool. Really, really good to see a lot of these companies giving back and, and especially in light of a lot of cuts being made to, you know, the official channels in America for mm -hmm. uh, environmental protection. It's good to see uh, a lot of the companies stepping up to provide that. In other news, Dane Reynolds managed to get himself arrested in Portugal and detained by immigration for a while. For a fairly fair reason. Yeah, I think so. So uh, for those listeners that haven't seen this, uh, Dane checked into a flight in the UK, cleared security, walked onto the aeroplane, flew to Portugal, got off, and somewhere between airport security in the UK and immigration in Portugal lost his passport. And so arrived with no passport and was thrown into jail, which uh, all sounds rather exciting. Yeah, that's one of those potentially misleading headlines that if you only read the headline and not the article, you could assume the worst. But yeah. Really not that crazy in the end, I guess. Not that crazy in the end, although it took it, it, it was 48 hours he was in there, huh. which would kind of suck in a detention cell in an airport. Um, yeah, yeah. The number of times that I'm going through airports and I'm getting on and off planes. And you go, oh, where's my passport? Oh, I've put it in this pocket or that pocket or whatever. And can you imagine just arriving there and going, oh, I would imagine oh, that's oh. probably a fairly common thing. I, sure. can, I can imagine just misplacing my passport when I'm filling out my form on the airplane before I arrive. Yeah, it just yeah. drops down the back of the seat. Yeah, yeah, that's the ultimate traveling oh shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> like you midway through international travel in an airport yeah. and you lose your passport. This is why we all need passport wallets. Oh, yeah, wasn't yeah. Derek mentioning that in the office the other day? Oh, I got a passport wallet. My girlfriend gave me one a couple of years ago, and it was just one of the best gifts ever because how often we're on planes, it's just like you just got to keep all your stuff together. I'm not the most organized guy in the world, and it helps me a ton. Yeah. That is the one thing that you do not want to lose when traveling. I was in Malaysia two years ago. I lost my passport, and I needed to apply for an emergency passport, and I spent four or five days in the embassy, which was basically the equivalent of sitting in the DMV in the States, and it was just a nightmare. I just wonder if, um, if I was in the airport and I found Dane Reynolds' passport lying on the floor, whether I'd hand it in or just keep it as a souvenir. Would, the question then is, would you, after this is all sorted and he's clear, 
Post it on Instagram. Post it on Instagram, 100%. <laughs> like, yeah. so hated. Just found this down Sucker. the back of a seat. <laughs> also in the world of the internet, Surfer Magazine uh, have taken over Surfing Magazine's Instagram and Facebook accounts and renamed it Surfer Films. It's, I, I couldn't quite work out what it was they're going to do with that. It, it, it sounded like when they launched it and in the, the heading for the accounts, it sounds like they're planning on making movies. And using that, but all they seem to have done is just started sharing lots of videos. Yeah, it um, in their press release, it just sounded like they were going to get way deeper into surf cinema. Mm-hmm. But uh, have you guys ever seen the? It's a, there's a really popular Instagram account called Nobody Surfs. Yes, oh, I just and, started following them, and um, they they basically just post little one minute shorts from nearly every released surf film on the internet and kind of yeah. just uh, all consolidates it in one place and it pretty look pretty much looks like surfer films just took that exact model yeah because i mean surfer magazine have i mean they've been making films pretty uh, consistently through through the last couple of years you know not like full length hour-long documentaries but you know pretty consistently like 20 to 30 minute edits. yeah they put out uh distant shores a couple of years ago right With yeah them. that was one of my favorite surf or, um, and they did the the momentum generation sort of regrouping out in uh out in the mentalities cradle of storms with cradle of storms uh, with chris was burkhardt that yeah was, that was really really good movie yeah they've done quite a few rolling into contest news i guess the big story the big sort of feel-good story owen wright back in the water surfing a WSL 6000 event, smoked his way through his first heat. 15, 16 point heat total. Then got knocked out. He got third of the four guys in the water in, in the next heat, but that's not bad. And um, lost pretty narrowly in the, uh, in the next round. Yeah. Only by a point or so, I think. Yeah, only by a point in, in shifty, you know, shifty beach break conditions. So I, s- I stayed up late to watch that one. Yeah, so everyone's just waiting to see if he's going to pick up his injury wildcard for the World Championship Tour this year. Based on how he was surfing there, it looks like he probably could do. And that's a pretty difficult event to jump back into because, first off, Newcastle had, it doesn't have unbelievable surf, particularly for the contest. Mm-hmm. So it, it's fairly difficult conditions where your performance is going to be dictated a lot on the waves that you find in the heat rather than how mm-hmm. well you're surfing. And it's also it's a four man heat with QS grinders. So. Yeah, that's a tough way to get back into it. And Owen Wright, to me, is one of those guys who surfs way better when the waves get good, kind of like mm-hmm. Kelly Slater. He, you know, he surfs small waves and, and, and bad waves pretty well, but when the waves get good, that's when his surfing really lights up. Yeah, I mean, he did have the advantage that that is his local mm-hmm. event. You know, that, that, that is his local area. Those are the beach he grew up surfing. So there is a little bit of local knowledge there. I am heavily pulling for Owen Wright this year. Yeah. He's just the ultimate feel-good story. Absolutely. Uh, Gabriel Medina's stepdad has been banned from all WSL events for a while for uh, getting a little overexcited I last wonder, year. I wonder what the event was. It, it cited Portugal, and I wonder what the event was that got him banned. Listeners remember, the world title came down to Portugal last year, and Gabriel Medina, he got put out pretty early in the event in a pretty strange heat. I forget he was, who he was against, but he was all over the place in the heat. And Yeah, I, I, I wonder if it was just... Kind of tensions from that performance, or was it at another specific event? As far as I know, that's a first. Um, obviously, more and more surfers now traveling with an entourage. Coaches, physios, dietitians, family, friends, you know. So it's kind of interesting to see, uh, see those guys being held accountable for their actions as well. I would be really, really embarrassed if my dad 
guy. <laughs> dad, stop it. If my dad got banned from being in the coaches area. Also on the contest circuit, the Big Wave World Tour has finished for the year. They, they have a slightly different schedule to the, the small wave tours. They do a, a Northern Hemisphere and a Southern Hemisphere event schedule. The year is now finished and Grant Baker has won the men's and Paige Arms has won the women's. So congratulations to them. Uh, this is the second time that Grant Baker's won the tour. But again, they've only actually surfed three of the events this year. Uh, and obviously the women only surfed one event total. So it'll be interesting to see if they're going to expand the women's tour for next year. Still on the big waves, the waiting period has closed for the Eddie Aikau Invitational. So no Eddie this year. And then obviously we're all waiting to see what will happen rolling forwards as far as the license and the sponsorship of that goes after the public debacle this year. And last thing in the news, and again, still on the big wave thing, is that Patagonia have announced that they are going to start marketing their big wave, the inflation vests, the safety mm -hmm. vests, but only if people show that they have done big wave safety training before you can buy it, which is kind of interesting. Which I think is a brilliant idea. Mm. The last thing that it, it, it just seems so unsafe for somebody who's hasn't put in the work to surf big waves to just buy the big wave vest and mm -hmm. just go out using it as a crutch. And then all of a sudden you're in a world of pain. So I think that is a, that's a really good idea by Patagonia. I think it's a good stand, isn't it? Dekine also released their big wave leash, which again, if you didn't, the Dekine team manager, there was no way to get hold of it. Mm -hmm. um, but you can now call and buy this special. I think it's about the same thickness as my arm and about 10 foot long, but uh, the leash that's designed for big wave paddle surfing. It's obviously there's more and more people as the equipment's getting better and as people become more and more aware of the spots, there are more and more people jumping in and, and giving it a go in big waves. So it's, it's good to see if these companies set the bar in this direction so that's, you know, show that you're capable before we'll say, sell you the product. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I wonder if Big Wave World Tour, with the coverage that they have now, have, have inspired more people to pursue surfing big waves. Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely an interesting one, isn't it? Because outside of surfing, I would say that the, the big wave stuff is, is what people may have been more aware of than anything else mm -hmm. because, it, you know, it's such dramatic imagery. If, if someone catches a big wave, it generally kind of, you know, my mum every now and then sends me a clipping from the big international newspaper that shows Laird Hamilton flying down the face of something ridiculous. I'm sure the, uh, the, the big wave... Uh, did you guys see the big waves in Portugal last week? Oh, yeah. yeah. Holy They were streaming smokes. it live on Facebook, actually. Yeah. In, in the US and in Europe, I'm sure that that's in a lot of the national papers. So I think that's what people become aware of. But I think more recently, you know, within the surf community, there has been that shift from toe to paddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before there was that barrier to entry that you've got to have a jet ski, you've got to have a buddy that you trust enough to drive that jet ski, you've you got to really work on all of that side of things. Special heavy shortboard towboard. Exactly. And whereas now, I think people are starting to realize that you can paddle into big waves and, you know, maybe on a smaller day, a, a, a 20 foot, 25 foot day, I think there's more and more people just giving it a go. So as I mentioned earlier on in the episode, or as I hinted to earlier on in the episode, myself and Rue had been bouncing around ideas. There'd been lots and lots of stories in the surf media and, and I think, you know, more and more uh, products being promoted that were that there as shark deterrents to try and make people feel safer in the water. And we both sort of felt that there were quite a lot of red flags on some of the marketing that they were doing and on how they'd work and their, their intended applications. 
So we wanted to uh, get an expert opinion on this, and we're, we're kind of lucky. Rue's brother-in-law is a marine biologist, and we were able to use him to reach out. And we managed to get hold of Yanis Papastamatiu, who is, is an associate professor marine biology at uh, Florida International University. And uh, he very kindly sat down and chatted with us about these different products and, and these different things. So we did touch slightly just out of mine and Rue's personal interest on things like culling, but the events of the last week or so hadn't happened at the time that we recorded it. So uh, I hope you guys find it interesting. Um, it was really, really cool to talk to Yanis and just to hear some of the actual science as to, to how these devices would work and what the probability of them uh, doing anything is. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So joining us on the show this week, we're very lucky to have Yanis Papastamatiu, who is a marine biologist and an assistant professor at Florida International University. And thank you very much for joining us, Yanis. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself? Where are you from? How did you end up where you are? Well, I'm, I'm actually, I am a Brit, I'm half British, half Greek. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up in London, but I also spent uh, close to seven years living in Athens, Greece. And, you know, my parents basically taught me to swim from the very beginning mm-hmm. and chucked me in the ocean, mostly in Greece, from the very beginning. So I always had a, you know, fascination with, with the ocean. You know, went to do my undergrad in the UK and then went to grad school in the US. Uh, so I've been, uh, did some several postdoc positions in the US. Uh, I briefly went back to the UK, to the University of St. Andrews, to do a research fellowship for a couple of years and then took this position at FIU uh, a year ago. So now living in Miami. So the reason that we've got Yanis on the show is because, as uh, many of you will know, listeners, there's been a lot of publicity in the surf media recently about shark deterrents and famously sometimes them not working. So Yanis is one of the world's leading shark experts and uh, we thought we'd get his take on things. So, Yanis, my understanding of uh, shark deterrence is, is fairly crude. Um, it seems like there's three main types. There's uh, the sort of the shark shield type thing, which, uh, according to their website, has a unique three-dimensional electrical waveform, which instantly turns sharks away. And then there's the shark bands, which use a, quote, patented magnetic technology. And then I saw a, a TED talk by a guy called Hamish Jolly, who has a company called Shark Mitigation Systems. And his, his TED talk was about how you can paint different stripes and various patterns on surfboards and on wetsuits, and that deters sharks. And I sort of got the sense, not that this was necessarily not legitimate science, but the research that they were claiming was irrefutable I don't know, there was a few red flags. The sample sizes seemed quite small. They didn't seem very well controlled. They seemed to be overstating their confidence in the result. Um, are you familiar with some of these technologies and what's your take on them? So I, I have some familiarity with some of those technologies. I'm mean, aware of all of them. Um, some of them I, I, I know a bit more than others. They obviously all rely in trying to either overstimulate particular sense or to make it very difficult for the animal to to really try and focus in on a particular sensory stimulus so for example the electroreception method which produces the electric field sharks are able to detect very weak electric currents and so the the aim of this is basically with this field of, of electric field around the surfboard or the diver that that's going to repel any shark coming in because it's just overloading their, their sensory system the one of the other technology you described i believe is is generating a magnetic field 
which is probably trying to do a similar thing. And then finally, you have the stripes, which is a, a visual deterrent. Um, because sharks use the electroreceptive sense to home in on prey and, and bring them to target. So by putting something that's strongly electrical in the water, that may repel them when they get within five feet. But would I be right that that's actually going to bring every shark within a couple of miles looking to see what's in the water? No, because first of all, they, they do use it to detect prey, but the prey are, are putting out very, very weak signals. Right. They can pick it up. It's a very short range. So you're looking at 30, 40, 50 centimeters, perhaps maximum a meter. And that's probably still pushing it. So they use it at very, very close range. Um, in some species, it might be used to find prey that's buried beneath the sand. So you can't see it, but they're still very, very close to it. Uh, in other species, it may be that they roll their eyes up or close their eyes just before they make contact, perhaps to protect the eyes, and then use that electro sense within the last 10, 20, 30 centimeters. But beyond that, at least as far as bioelectric fields produced by their prey, they're just not going to be able to detect it. The other problem, and this is something that at least some of the older manufacturers used to try and fake, I don't know about the, the more recent ones, is that no matter how sensitive you are to electric fields, the laws of physics dictate that electric fields are very, very rapidly attenuated by seawater. Yeah. Even if you're incredibly sensitive, you're still not going to be able to detect it beyond a meter. So I, I say that because I remember some of the older shark shields, they used to be called, claimed to have a five meter repellent radius, which is impossible because there's no way, again, just based on the laws of physics, that there's going to be a strong enough electric field at five meter distance to repel anything. So it, it comes down to, to basic physics at that point. That's interesting because you sort of get the impression or, or perhaps this is just that I haven't really read around the subject thoroughly enough, but you sort of get the impression that it's a much wider protective circle. I mean, I don't think I'd feel very comfortable if a shark was within a meter of me before it decided not to actually attack. Well, yeah, uh, and that's the problem, that a lot of them do make these claims that they have a very, very large radius. And I have seen, there has been experimental evidence that these uh, devices can repel sharks at these very short distances. So legitimate studies showing that but again it's at a very short distance so so just sticking on the electro pulse would you wear one i mean you're in the water with sharks a lot is it is it something that you think about no i wouldn't i i, I my overall feeling is that i don't believe these repellents are very useful certainly not to the extent that i think wearing one makes me feel any safer in the water that's just me personally you know there, there'll be others that disagree with me that's just my opinion and is that because you think that they're not effective or because you think that the effect is so minimal and other factors like presumably the feeding patterns of the shark, etc., just grossly outweigh any positive effect that, you know, the shark shield might have? With all of these technologies, think of it in these ways. First of all, a lot of them were never scientifically tested. It was just basically, I mean, anyone can come up with a device and say, we've tested this and it works at this radius. It's amazing. With, with little scientific proof. Now, more recently, you're starting to see scientific studies to actually try and uh, measure how effective they may be. But even in those cases where you, uh, let's say, you do get a significant number of animals coming in towards a baited trial and being repelled by the electric current, and you say, okay, it is significant. There is a statistical difference that there's a greater chance that those sharks are going to be repelled. The problem is that with perhaps some very, very rare exceptions, 
those studies are trying to use bait to bring these animals in. And obviously the bait is of interest. But there's a big difference between a shark coming in because it smelt some dead fish and checking out a piece of bait versus a shark that is on a full, full-on strike mode with live prey. So particularly if you think you're dealing with white sharks, let's say, which makes a strike on a surfer on the surface. For whatever reason, we can go into why it decided to do that, but it's obviously making an attempt to strike that individual. That's a very different state for the animal to be in versus one that's just coming in on a chum slick and checking out a piece of bait. And the other thing to consider is, especially when you're talking about white shark, let's say a repellent does work at very short distance. How useful is that going to be with an animal that is launching itself full speed from the bottom? You know, by the time it's detecting the repellent, it's probably already struck you. So just going back, some of the the other products out there are, are claiming to use magnetic fields to repel the shark. Is there any is there any legitimacy to that? Are, 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 are sharks particularly sensitive to magnetic fields? So it's kind of a holy grail question in shark sensory biology: whether or not sharks can directly measure magnetic fields. Yeah. Or whether they can indirectly measure them via the electric fields. Because essentially, any time you have movement within a magnetic field, it generates an electric field. Yeah. We're fairly confident that they can detect magnetic fields to navigate. Yeah. But the question is, again, whether they're doing that by directly having a magnetic sense, they can actually detect that magnetic field, or if they're doing it via the electroreception system where they're measuring electric fields indirectly via the uh, movement or motion within the magnetic field. And there has been study, there have been studies um, looking at repellents that uh, emit magnetic fields. And again, those have shown evidence that they can repel sharks in some cases. But again, the same issues that I raised for the uh, electro repellents are going to be uh, just as, as valid when you're looking at magnetic repellents. And in the case of the, the bracelet, I saw a video where somebody tied one to a piece of bait on a camera uh, and the sharks just came and ate it. <laughs> <laughs> I know the manufacturer's response was, well, you have to have motion for this to be to work. There has to, it can't be stationary. But then yeah. my point is, well, what's the point? If you have a surfer sitting on the surface with their legs hanging down, they're not moving. You know? yeah. So then it, it's okay, okay, then it still doesn't work. Yes. So, you know, there may be a, an explanation in terms of how they, they say it works, but the, the, the problem is, is it practical? Is it really going to work in a real situation? Absolutely. And, and so then finally on that subject is the, the camouflage patterns on wetsuits and surfboards and, and things like that. Again, it, the mechanism there is, is that you're trying to make yourself invisible to the shark or you're trying to make yourself look like a threat to the shark. That one is, is actually, I, I know less about and... I would say that the group that are doing research on that repellent uh, includes some very respected sensory biologists. So right. I would normally have discounted this immediately as total rubbish. But the fact that they have presented some evidence to say that they work means that I, I am more inclined to listen, at least in terms of see what, what they found. So I don't actually know what the mechanisms are by which they say this works. I don't believe there's been any published studies. I did see a talk at a meeting where one of them presented the results and again showed some video of a shark approaching the bait and uh, responding by averting you know, or leaving the, the bait alone. So again, there may be some scientific evidence that this works, but again, the exact same points I raised still apply. Even more so in that this also requires good visibility 
yes. presumably, for it to work. But again, if you have a shark launching itself from below, I guess they will claim that, that the shark may see that before it makes a strike. Mm-hmm. I would have to see some pretty good evidence before I'd buy any of that. And that means I want to see you know, a shark that is in full attack mode, <laughs> basically halting or averting its attack. So I may have seen a, a similar talk to you. There's actually a, a, a TED talk up, as I mentioned before, where the owner of SMS is talking about the tests that they did. And it seemed to me from the way he presented it that they had done uh, two or three reps where the bait had not been covered in this special paint pattern and then two or three reps where it had been, or maybe even less, maybe one or two reps. And my immediate thought was, that's an incredibly small sample size to be... Uh, you know, rolling the dice on whether a shark attacks you or not on. Just uh, uh, what, what kind of sample size would you like to see to start thinking, okay, this, this is now some pretty good evidence? Well, I, can't, I couldn't really answer that because it's going to depend on the variability in your results. So, for example, if every time you do it, the shark is repelled, then you could probably get away with a relatively small sample size. You still want more than three, but you see what I mean? Because there's no variability. Yes. If 30% of the time you do it, the shark still takes the bait, then for it to be a statistical effect, you still need to have a larger sample size. So I couldn't directly uh, answer that without uh, you know, being able to see the specifics of the experimental design. But again, that raises the issue that, um, as far as I know, there is not a published study that has been done. I, I know they have results, and I've, I've seen some of those presented, but I don't believe there's been a scientific publication yet for the completed study. We did an interview with Derek Burkholder a, a little while back, and we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the differences be- between shark events, you know, shark interactions with humans. We were talking about with these different repellent technologies and whether they would turn a shark away or not, and the, the, the important difference between whether they were in full strike mode and whether they were just, you know, investigating a, a, a chum line or something. I think most of the listeners will probably have seen, you know, when a great white is in strike mode, I mean, that the, they hit a seal at 40 miles an hour and chuck it at 30 feet in the air. Is there any data that, uh, about how often sharks are genuinely attacking, you know, striking humans like that, as opposed to them just kind of investigating? You know, there was, there was recently a paper out looking at surfer wounds in terms of where the location of the bites were and saying that they were actually quite different from the way that a white shark strikes a seal. Mm-hmm. And while overall I mostly disagreed with the way the paper was put together, I think that the okay. overall message I probably agree with in that there you know you don't tend to see that type of strike on a human as you do uh, with what you see with seals. Now the other problem is of course that those strikes are also a, a function of where the attack happens. Right. So there, there isn't enough water below a surfer for the shark to, to attack in that manner. You don't see white sharks in Guadalupe flying out of the air trying to take seals. Uh, right. You don't even see that in some uh, parts of South Africa, but you do in False Bay see it quite frequently. Obviously, there's not, <laughs> no, no surfers hanging around Seal Island in False Bay. So it's very right. difficult to compare those two because they're going to be in different environments. But th- there's probably, I think reasonable evidence that they may adjust their behavior based on whether they're trying to strike a human or a seal which is also why i think it's been a a, there's been a big oversimplification of saying that strikes on humans are just a shark mistaking us for a seal right they're going about 
stalking a different type of prey in certain situations more it's an investigation and a bite on a different type of prey and they may very well once they've taken the bite you know i think there's fairly good evidence that the you know the 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 probability of them trying to stick around and, and eat a human victim is very very low so they may right. well make that strike and decide that that's just not worth the effort to continue trying to take that prey item but i, I don't believe in a, in a very simplified oh, we just look like a seal and they don't know the difference. Got you. So I'm very interested to hear a little bit more about your work and, and, and your research. But just before we go on, to sort of wrap up the, the conversation about shark deterrence, the one thing that we see as consumers, as surfers, is on all of these various websites promoting shark deterrence is they say in huge letters, scientifically proven everywhere. Would you say that as a rule of thumb, there, there hasn't been enough peer-reviewed published studies to say that there is a scientific consensus on any one of these products that's that's strong enough to say yes this has been proven to work yes i mean so again in the earlier days there would be no scientific evidence at all now you are starting to see scientific uh, studies being done but again there's a big difference between saying we have scientific evidence that it could work and saying that it's an effective repellent and certainly not a, a a study saying that this is scientifically an effective repellent. That's a big difference. Again, you you can see studies showing that magnets can reduce the probability of a shark taking bait. Those do exist. Or studies showing that electric fields increase the chance that a shark will avert its approach to bait. Those exist. That's still a big step from them saying that, therefore, this is scientifically proven to be an effective repellent and will keep you safer. Well, it certainly sounds like a very interesting area of research and perhaps in a couple of years' time we can get you back on the show and, and you can give us a little bit of an update as to how things have progressed. I try and keep an open mind. So if you know if, if things change and some great study does come out showing it otherwise, you know, I'm certainly willing to take back what I've said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's that's always we're, that's always very much in the spirit of the show. We're, we're always very happy to be proven to be wrong about things. We try and try and stick with the process of science rather than pinning our colours to any one uh, position. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, just as an overview, it sort of sounds like the shark deterrents that are available are probably not worth having. And I mean, given the amount of shark attacks that we're seeing, you know, should we be more worried about just putting our seatbelt on when we drive to the beach? I mean, a lot of the time it's going to be a simple numbers game. You know, when you have more people in the water or more sharks in the water, you're more likely to get some sort of interaction, which is still very, very rare. But obviously the chance goes up of it happening and that may include a negative interaction. So my point of view is generally that you just have to accept a certain degree of risk if you want to be a surfer that that could happen. It's very small, but all the surfers, I mean, I'm not a surfer myself, but all the surfers I talk to, seem to have a, a very good acceptance of that risk could happen to them, although it is a, a very small one. You know, and I, I'm always trying to, and I think, that, you know, speaking for my fellow scientists and colleagues, try and provide information that could perhaps help to reduce the risk in terms of what, what time of day to avoid going in the water, questions like things like that. But um, that risk is always going to be there. And so I think it just comes down to accepting it. So my reaction on the occasions that I've been out surfing and have suddenly seen a fin pop up has always been first and foremost excitement at being in the presence of such a fascinating animal. And perhaps that's just incredibly naive of me. But um, I mean, you're someone who's in the, in the water a lot with sharks. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about 
you know, what your research involves and, and, and some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, first of all, I mean, I'm a diver, not, not a surfer. So diving is a lot safer in terms of shark interaction than surfing is. Oh, that's interesting. Just, just before you go on, wh- wh- why is that? Just because you're more likely to see an approaching animal. And my general rule when diving with sharks is that I always want them to know that I know they're there. So I will, you know, do my absolute best to make sure it doesn't get behind me. That's the, the it's the shark I don't see that worries me more. Obviously, when you're when you're surfing, you you don't see what's going on, so you're just essentially floating around and and hoping nothing will happen. But obviously, when I dive, to me, you know, if I don't see any sharks, that's a huge disappointment on any dive. So I'm always, uh, you know, hoping to see one, and every time I do see one, it really you know brings me. Uh, a great deal of joy and that doesn't ever change that's just something i still get the same feeling when i see them now as i did 20 years ago oh that's fantastic so i i hear that you've been doing some deep dives particularly recently and have been been seeing some great whites off the coast of florida which apparently is it wasn't thought that there were great whites just off the coast of florida up until up until fairly recently could you could you tell us a bit more about that yeah so i i actually haven't seen a white shark off of florida that's uh, i oh, okay. i do i do research off of mexico with white sharks in in guadalupe and i've also done some research off of south africa so i do i'm involved with some uh, white shark research but uh, it's it's not been off Florida, but they are certainly starting to see uh, or report more sightings of white sharks in these waters, particularly seasonally. So you're now getting quite a few divers and fishermen starting to report seeing seeing these animals now. And we know that Florida coastal waters certainly encompass the range of of, of white shark movements. As far as deep deeper reefs i do have an interest in in coral reefs that go beyond the depth that most scuba divers will go to so essentially most people assume that coral reefs going to go from the surface down to 30 meters uh, and that's largely because that's where most of the research has taken place because that's been the limit of conventional scuba so it's not really been that uh, the reefs end at 30 it's more that the biologists don't normally go below 30 because it's it's too deep to go with regular scuba tanks but in the last decade or so with the um, increasing popularity of technical diving methods especially uh, closed circuit rebreathers now scientists can work at these deeper depths and so that's really been my involvement uh, in in doing research at these mesophotic depths at these on these deeper reefs that that traditionally uh, understudied. That's really cool. So presumably it must take an awfully long time for you to decompress after one of those dives. How long are you in the water each time? It, it completely depends on how deep you go and, and perhaps more importantly, how long you stay down. Yeah. I mean, the longest dive I've done was just over four hours. Uh, I have colleagues who will do six or seven hour dives. So, um, you know, it can be quite substantial. Yeah. Wow. And, and and what is it that just for you personally is exciting about exploring the reefs down at these deeper depths? Uh, you know, what, what questions are you trying to answer? What things are you finding? Well, I've, I've made this statement before, but for me, it's, it's as close as I'll get to exploring the moon in the sense that there's very few places on the planet where you can go and say that I'm the first human being to ever see this site or ever visit this spot. But with some of the deep reefs I've been on, I can for sure say that. And so that sense of exploration that you are now seeing a reef that no human being has ever seen before is obviously something quite special to say. 
but from a scientific standpoint, there's obviously a lot more to them because you know we're now starting to again see how well connected they are. Uh, in some cases, with shallow reefs, and you know one of the big questions is whether or not these deeper reefs kind of act like a refuge for fishes and uh, corals and things like that, where because they're deeper, they are protected from both natural events like storms, but then also from human influences like fishing, just because they're they're harder to access. Uh, and whether or not they can essentially function as, as a refuge. So some of the research that I'm involved with at the moment is, is trying to answer those questions. So it's, it sounds like you're just sort of exploring those reefs independently of your, your work with sharks. So just going back to talking about sharks quickly, because this was something that I specifically wanted to ask you about. Could you just talk a little bit about why you think it's important that we, you know, as humans, understand sharks better One analogy I often hear people say is, you know, none of us are ever going to go and live in the Arctic Circle, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and understand what's going on there um, as much as we can. And, you know, none of us are going to probably ever interact personally with sharks in the way you do. But but why why do you feel the the research into their behavior and and all that kind of thing is, is, is important and of value to us? Well, I'll start off by saying that my my original interest with mesophotic reefs was actually was related to sharks, and that was to understand how sharks were using those deeper reefs, because we had data showing that they would dive to within those depths quite regularly, but not showing how they interact with those reefs or how important they were, and then potentially if those deeper reefs could also provide refuge for sharks and other predators that are living down there. So that was my initial uh, entry into that area of research, and it kind of just blossomed from that. Onto your onto your second point, you know, one of the, one of the, the the phrase you often hear is that sharks as top predators are, are critical for marine ecosystems, and you know this goes back to a, a long-standing belief in ecology that animals at the top of the food chain play a very important role in helping regulate those ecosystems. And we have, you know, you have quite a lot of evidence of that from terrestrial systems and in some cases marine systems. So it's therefore assumed that sharks, many of which are going to be in the upper levels of the food chain, would play a similar role. The problem is, is that there's actually not a great deal of scientific evidence or knowledge even to, to support that or say that we understand what that role may be. Very few sharks are at the top of the food chain, as in right at the top. I mean, you could count probably on one hand the number of species that actually fit that classification. So most of them, you could say, are upper level predators, but not necessarily at the very top. The the second point is then when we start to say, well, what effect do they have on their ecosystem? In many cases, the answer is we don't know, because there's very actual little empirical evidence to, to answer that question. You know, there's a variety of different ways you can approach that in terms of what methods you use to try and ask that question. But they're very difficult questions to answer. But they are very important because, uh, as you probably all aware, there's there's several shark populations uh, around the world that are you know not doing well due to a variety of different reasons, and we don't fully understand what effect that may have on the ecosystem. So even though you may not ever interact with the sharks, the ocean's not a closed box. Uh, that that's basically what it comes down to, and there can be unforeseen uh, impacts of changes to the ecosystem, which can cascade in, in different in ways we just can't fully understand at this point. So it's really just trying to answer those questions that may seem simple to answer, but are in fact very difficult to do so. So 
you know, one of the things that that we hear about again as non-scientists is the idea that sharks are being culled in various areas, particularly around Australia, through fear of shark attacks. Is, is that something that you think is understandable, or that as a scientist you're very strongly opposed to? No, I'm very, I'm very strongly opposed to culling. It's the the only scientific study of the effects of culling was actually done in Hawaii when they did a culling program in the '60s in response to some shark attacks, and. The data they did collect showed no effect of the culling in terms of human safety. Now, it's very difficult to analyze data sets like that because shark attacks are so low that you know you have very little data to go with. The statistical power is very low. So inferring anything from those sorts of data sets is very difficult to do. By that you mean if there's like you know one attack one year and two attacks the next year, you can say, well, there's been a 100% increase. Yes, exactly. So I, I get that. So if I say the average number of attacks per year is two and then there's four, then um, someone could respond, oh, so it's doubled. Well, obviously that doesn't mean anything because you're, you're looking at a sample size of two versus four. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to analyze. But the evidence we had showed no effect of the culling in terms of reducing the chance of shark attack. Now, obviously, if you fish hard enough and remove remove enough animals, then you're going to uh, lower the attack rate. But you'd have to put a massive amount of effort into it. And then, I mean, from a uh, ecological standpoint, you know, even if we don't necessarily know what the role of some of these sharks are, there's no question that it's a, a bad idea to just be removing all the predators. And then from an ethical, moral standpoint, you know, again, if we go into the water to have fun, which is essentially what we're talking about here, people going in for hobbies and uh, swimming, and we obviously don't want to have anybody getting attacked, but it's a choice we make. And to go out there and start killing all the predators because uh, they're just doing what they do naturally, to me, is, is ethically wrong as well. Yeah, I think that's very well articulated. So, you know, you're trying to understand the behavior of this species and the ecosystem that they live in at a time when that whole ecosystem is changing probably more rapidly than it has done at any point in the past do you, do you sometimes feeling like you're almost kind of trying to trying to chase a shadow by trying to understand what's going on well it's a very it's a very good point because the 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 bigger issue is that we don't know what in in most cases what the baseline is i mean if you look at marine sciences particularly as it relates to animal ecology, shark ecology, we only started studying these animals well after human impacts started to occur. So if I say, what is the natural state of the system? Well, how do you answer that when, you know, we only started studying the system after the impacts had happened? Obviously, they're getting worse and and effects have gotten much greater over the decades, but we never started working in those systems until after the impact started. So it's a difficult question to answer, and there's there's a few ways around it, and that you do have a few locations around the world where you have, I wouldn't say they're fully pristine, but they're as close as you're going to get to being able to see an ecosystem as it may have looked before humans start to influence it. Where are those places? Well, there's a few different places, and they tend to be places that are very remote and properly protected. So the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands is is one example. The northern line islands, particularly uh, Palmyra Atoll, which is in the central Pacific, is another one. So these are places that they're very remote. In those cases, they're both U.S. federal wildlife refuges. So they do have a, they've research stations. There are people there who can see if there's fishing going on. There's obviously some Coast Guard protection. So there's enough uh, resources available to basically really drive down uh, human impact. So I, I wouldn't say they're fully pristine because there have been impacts in the past, but 
they're about as close as you're going to get. That's interesting. That's really cool. So I've got one slightly silly question for you. If you could go back in time and you could convince Steven Spielberg not to make Jaws, do you think that would be a good thing? You know, here's the thing. I think Jaws is an incredible film. Like, it's a very well-crafted film. And I don't blame Steven Spielberg for the way humans responded to it. So what I would say is, because again, I, I think it's a, a fantastic film, what I would, would do differently, which there's no way he could have seen, was include a conservation message. So my, my view with, you know, with, with Jaws, it, it's a monster film. And it's the same whether you're having a monsters, a film about giant spiders or whatever it may be. It's not meant to be reality. And yeah. it's how people portray it. I mean, again, do you blame the director for everybody just going crazy about it at the time? Um, I don't. Obviously, I think if I could go back in time and tell him, I would say, you know, well, include a, a conservation marketing campaign to go along with it and make it clear like this is just a film. You know, you don't have to be terrified of sharks but obviously it was a very different time and we didn't understand uh much about these animals but again i'm a big fan of the film i think it's a great film and and so finally is there anything that you'd just like to leave our listeners with a sort of a if if there's something that you'd just like the public understanding of sharks to be raised about or um uh, just just any message you'd like to put out there on something that we haven't talked about. You know, no, you know, I, I would just simply say that again. My, I, I remember growing up. My absolute dream was to see a shark in the water. There's there's very few sharks in Greece, so I never got to see one. So it just was watching on TV, and I was like, I just like, I cannot wait to the day I get to see one. And now I've spent nearly twenty years of seeing them in the water, and it's never an old feeling when you see one coming along, especially one that just happens to just swim past you. It's a privilege to share the water with an animal like that. And I, I realize that not everybody's going to agree with me in that sense or even feel the same way, but it would, you know, I do hope people can, can see them as, uh, as you know, magnificent animals. Well, Yanis, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Yeah, it's been a real so pleasure much. talking to you. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So, listener emails. As always, it's great to have your emails and your feedback about uh, what we're doing and to have your questions to challenge us and get our opinions on. So we've got time for a couple of emails this episode. Tommy, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, okay. Uh, Here's an email from Adam Heron, who listened to our episode 41 about longboarding and about the future state of professional longboarding. Our heated debate. Our heated debate, yeah. Heated. (laughs) back and forth. So he says, the next film Bruce Brown filmed after The Endless Summer was a motorcycle documentary called On Any Sunday. Filmed during the late 60s and early 70s, it followed the American Motorcycle Association Pro Circuit, which at the time consisted of several different types of events, dirt, street, and flat track. Riders had to excel in all three types to win enough points to be crowned the season champion. Thus, riders had to ride and master three different but similar types of machines to win which brings me around to the Longboard World Tour. My idea would be to marry the schools of longboarding and a dynamic criteria together, resulting in a possibly more nuanced tour than the shortboard tour. Firstly, there would be equal number of events highlighting the best of all the schools of longboarding. This is critical. Secondly, the board restrictions would coincide with the type of event. The single fin log would be unrestricted the whole season and riders may use it in any competition. There will be two traditional log events showcasing the traditional form, much like the duct tape criteria. There will be two events where the current high performance criteria will be favored conditions. 
There shall also be two events based on the tube and burly wave surfing. During these events, barrels will be the criteria and board restrictions will be lifted again to include any fin com combination, narrower noses and board lengths greater than 8.6. Uh, he says that the tour should start in the spring with the first event and finish in Hawaii in the winter. Uh, number one, Noosa Head, traditional logging, March or April. Number two, Queens, Waikiki, high performance, May or June. Number three, Puerto Escondido, the tube, July or August. Malibu is number four, traditional surfing in September. Number five would be Brazil, high performance, sometime in October. And number six would be Sunset Beach, the tube, the big stuff. He says, those are my ideas. I think it's inclusive, marketable, and fun. Anyway, thanks for the opportunity to share my idea and keep up the podcast. We so definitely Thank you will. very much for that email, Adam. Just with that, doesn't a longboard need to be nine foot plus to be a longboard? Well, see, that's an interesting one because yes, but only by the current competition criteria that says nine foot and over. But obviously, like, if I ride a board that's nine foot and Harrison rides a board that's nine foot, you know, from a volume to weight aspect, you know, you may have an advantage or I may have an advantage, but it, we're not surfing on an even playing field by both riding 9-0 longboards. It's an interesting one that we have, we've normally said with longboards, it's anything over nine foot, but I was doing the calculations, the, the volume to weight calculations between me and my girlfriend, because I'm almost double her weight and, uh, you know, her shortboard and then working out the volume to weight and what, what the equivalent size board for me would be. And it, it's just ridiculous. She's sort of riding a Five seven, and the equivalent for me is a seven foot board. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of brings up the like what we were talking about before, though. Like, if you have to put a, a size restriction on a board so that it, if you make it any smaller, is going to be beneficial, then it doesn't really make sense because, like, why not just ride the best equipment for what you're trying to do so that what you're trying to do can be the best for the viewers or for the sport, right? Yeah. So the reason people ride nine foot plus boards is because it allows them to trim and nose ride better. So if you're going to have a category where it, you can't ride a certain length board because it's going to make it easier, then it just is sort of like a, it's a weird criteria to put out there in the first place. It is. That's slightly getting back into the conversation that we had in, uh, in episode 41. So if, if you guys want to listen in. Yeah, I think that the problem with this is there already is a tour, uh, an open division tour where you can ride any equipment you want and it, it crowns the world title. So I don't think we need to make a open, but has to be eight foot plus kind of surfboard for the, the kind of the aforementioned problem. Well, so I guess here's the thing. If you did expand the longboard tour to mm. include, and, and, you know, Sunset Beach is a classic event that has been ridden on longboards for generations. Mm -hmm. A single fin log is not the correct board to try and ride at well overhead Sunset Beach. Yeah, I think that a, a longboard event shouldn't be held in a wave that's going to be that the wave is going to be the prohibitive factor. Nothing is more frustrating than being out in conditions on the longboard. So when I was growing up, I did a lot of longboard competitions, and particularly I grew up doing the the ESA, the Eastern Surfing Association, and the big end of the year contest was located in Cape Hatteras every fall, and it's in September, which is typically a time of the year that the surf gets really heavy up there. It's, it's known for being big beach break barrels, and there's just nothing in the world more frustrating than being out in really good or punchy, powerful surf on a board that doesn't work well for the, comp the, the conditions. And that, that can be whether it's a single fin log or a high-performance log. It's, there's still always going to be something better, you know, whether it's you know, a sleek seven-foot pintail or, or, or a shortboard. I just, 
I think it's a lot more appropriate to choose the, the, the board on the conditions rather than have a, a rule and then having to fit into that criteria. But I would say, for example, that if I was going out to surf Sunset Beach, mm -hmm. a longboard would be a board that I would consider taking out there. Depends like, on the condition. Well, it depends on the condition, but, but my point being that it is an applicable wave to ride a longboard because it's a wave where there's an awful lot of water moving. It's nice to have a lot of volume, maybe a little bit more pulled in, maybe a little bit more of a performance shape, but it, that, that is a legitimate use for a longboard-shaped design, and you can still nose-ride it. It's just that a trying to nose-ride a traditional log in 15-foot surf is pretty tricky. It almost seems like if the criteria are set in stone that you know, surfing a smaller board is going to help you surf to those criteria better, it doesn't really make much sense. What have you said that there's no restriction on length, but it's a longboard contest, and we're going to be scoring longboard surfing? Then, then riding a longboard does become beneficial because if you can surf to the criteria better on a longboard, then it makes yeah. sense. All right, I have an alternate idea for you, Adam. Why yeah, don't you definitely. throw the word longboard out of that criteria and why don't you just call it a trim-based event and then not have any restrictions on, a, on equipment? Go through the list. Noosa, small Noosa, the way you're going to surf the wave best in regards to trim is on a log. Queens and Waikiki, it could be a log. It could be like a six and a half foot egg you know that might be the most advantageous board for the conditions sunset beach you might end up being on you know kind of a sleek 710 pintail or if it's small point surf maybe you might ride a log and then just throw out the restriction of it being a longboard event at all and instead of having that be the limiting factor just point the criteria into that alternate style of surf i mean Brazil, maybe the waves could be really lined up and good on a, on a fish or something that will allow you to trim. And then, then, you, then now you're sort of opening it to that whole world of alternate design. And, and I think that sort of take away the problem of like high performance versus... It seems to me like a, an alternate surf craft tour would be quite an interesting, very marketable thing. You know, obviously the longboard events are pretty, pretty good and pretty marketable, but... Uh, would you then end up with guys that, that can't specialize enough on longboarding to mm -hmm. make it good? There's so many really well-rounded surfers right now. You take Ryan Birch. You know, he could surf a log with the best at Noosa. He put up a perfect 10 in the duct tape event there. He can also surf cloud break on an ASIM. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, I, I think a, an alternate tour that kind of rewarded surfing like that would be, it'd be beneficial for everyone. The viewer, there's a, obviously a huge market for it. The surfers, there's these giant group of surfers who are incredibly talented but don't currently fit into this, the, the surf industry in a way that re rewards them financially. I don't know. It could be a win-win. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Harrison, you got another, another question for us? Sure. We've got a question from Dan Gowenlock. To switch or not? So Dan writes, hello, podcasters, long-time listener, first-time caller. I am hoping you guys will be able to help me out to resolve a confusion that is occupying an unreasonable amount of my brain power at the moment. I've been surfing pretty regularly for around 10 years or so. I would put myself in your level three category and for each of those 10 long years of incremental progress, I have been surfing goofy footed. A couple of years ago, I bought a Carver skateboard mainly to give me a chance to work on surfing technique when there was no waves. I live on the North Sea in Northeast Scotland, so we have long flat spells. I had skated a tiny bit as a kid, but I'm definitely not a skater. However, I then found and still find that I am far less comfortable skating goofy than regular, and so for the last couple of years, I've been surfing goofy and skating regular-footed. 
However, I can't get over this nagging feeling that if skating feels so much more natural with a regular stance, then maybe I'm holding myself back in terms of surfing by being a goofy-footed surfer. I can't remember why I learned to surf goofy. I suspect someone did the push me on the back trick, and I took that as a gospel. I guess this leaves me with three choices. A, stick with what I'm doing. B, spend some time learning to pop up and then learn to surf as a regular, although I feel like I run the risk of not finding it makes a big difference and then set myself back by losing some of the muscle memory of surfing goofy. Or C, learn to skate goofy. I've tried this a bit over the last month or so and made a small amount of progress, but it still feels less normal than with my right foot on the tail. So, I'm hoping with your scientific take on things that you guys might be able to work out if there is a, any logical reason for me to feel more natural to surf one way and then skate the other. Love the show. Thanks in advance. It's actually surprisingly common, I would say. The number of people that we have that we're teaching who you know, that, that have, have some experience of doing a different board sport the other way around. Why that is, I, I'm not entirely sure. Just to clarify a couple of his points there, when he says that he's a, a level three surfer, so uh, for listeners that aren't familiar with the, the language that we use, level three surfing is uh, surfing down the line, across the face of the wave, and working on performing sort of cutbacks and re-entries uh, on the wave. So I don't know, it's a, it, it's a tricky one to know whether there is any need to even solve it. Uh, growing up, I had... Everybody has one of those friends who just kind of thrives at everything they do. And I, I had a, a, a friend named Ben who, he was a, a pretty decent surfer, surfed goofy foot. Really good skateboarder, skated regular foot. Like, an unbelievable quarterback playing American football, threw with his right hand, and he's currently in the MLB playing for the Seattle Mariners, pitching with his left hand. So it, it's just kind of, it's one of those things, you know, if, yeah. if you have the ability, you can do it with I've encountered uh, lots of lots of clients, lots of people I've coached to surf who've come from a snowboarding or a skateboarding background, and then in the, on the land they've practiced in the stance that they they thought they were, and then in the water it's been completely different, and they've kind of got a bit in a bit of a rut in trying to change it to the same stance that they snowboard or the same stance that they skateboard. My advice would be just what happens in the water, stick to that because that's going to be your method to move on with. With, uh, with regard to your comments on skateboarding, I just wonder whether you um, kick with your front foot or kick with your back foot, because um, sometimes Mongo footers actually skateboard in a stance that would be different to the way they surf. Most people, when they're skateboarding, when they're pushing, they have their front foot on the deck and they push with their back foot. And Mongo is where you stand with your back foot on the board and push with your front foot. Dan, I think you got a bit of an opportunity here. I think, yes, yeah, switch foot surfing is not only okay it's encouraged i mean in the history of surfing there's a ton of guys that made their name off of surfing with both their right and left forward you have butch van artsdale uh he one of the pioneers of pipe he was competent as a goofy foot and a regular i was about to say foot. yeah going back to the 60s and before there wasn't really a regular yeah. and a goofy it was just you surfed facing the wave even later know. uh late 70s buttons Mm -hmm. Buttons is one of the you know one of the greatest surfers of all time, and he would switch stance three or four times on a ride. And, yeah. uh, and even a lot of the good longboarders today, what makes them so good is that they can switch their stance. Yeah, I actually had an an, an epic belly flop this morning trying to switch my stance <laughs> on the longboard. But Dan, I think you should go with it. I think there's no reason why you can't be surfing frontside all the time. Yeah. Well, I I guess. 
just to put the opposite argument down, if you feel very comfortable skateboarding, uh, you know, just cruising along and, and that regular footed stance feels more comfortable, then there is potentially a chance that that would feel uh, better on a surfboard. But what there is, of course, is a lot of uh, muscle memory and flexibility for popping up, that process of going from lying down to standing up. And I think a lot of times, you know, people people will learn to pop up a certain way around. And once you've learned that muscle memory, it is quite hard to correct. It's not impossible, though. You know, practicing on dry land, lying down on the floor, popping up over and over and over again in, in, in that regular stance and then taking it into the water will be an interesting way to see how it goes. And the final thing that you slightly touched on as well, Tommy, is that, that there are, you know, techniques that we use when we're surfing and when we're skateboarding that may mean that if you are, you know, you've got a dominant right foot or a dominant left foot, that it's easier to say skate and surf opposite way around. If you are, you know, trimming a surfboard a little bit more and you're surfing off your front foot, and then when you're skateboarding, you're really comfortable pivoting the board back and you're standing on that back foot a little bit more, then that might explain why one feels better the other way around and, and vice versa. But yeah, the, the, the best thing to do by it would, would probably be to get out there and do a little bit of A-B testing. And, and then when you get a real not very good day of surf, a bit stormy, a bit lumpy and bumpy, get a longboard, jump in the white water and just get a load of pop-ups in. Try surfing regular foot a little bit. See how that feels. See if it feels completely unnatural or see if, it, if that natural feel from the skateboard reappears. And if it doesn't, as we've said, I, you know, don't worry about it. There's, uh, you are among good company. Right, that's almost all that we have time for. Before we go, we have our regular What to Watches. And there's been a little flurry after all our longboard recommendations over the last few weeks. Shortboard edits coming out. I'm going to put in the, uh, the Mick Fanning edit the, with Rip Curl where he went and surfed the snake, which looks like a horrible wave. I think even Mick Fanning said in one of the write-ups that he can probably only think of two or three goofy foots in the world that would be able to surf it because it's such a quick wave. But. I definitely want to give it a go. It looks amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty intense looking right-hand wave. He made it look surfable. It probably is not surfable. I was about to say, I mean, Mick Fanning is a man who is the reputation of being the fastest surfer on two feet. So White lightning. Yeah. There's been loads and loads of speculation about where it is. Lots and lots of people on the internet claiming to know where it is. I think it, it, to me, it looked just like the way that Capesero found. Yeah. Um, found a few years ago. It was the first yeah. one to post footage of, I think. Is that in West Africa? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, in a pretty intimidating like area in West Africa. It's um, Mauritania. 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 Yeah. And it just sounds like I don't care how perfect the wave is. I, I just can't go there. <laughs> um, what do you got for us, Tommy? I watched Seabass with uh, Sebastian Zietz. The man um, with three thumbs. Has he? He's got three yeah. thumbs. Incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's got a weird little little growth little off the side of... Yeah, he's got a little nubbin. Go figure. Well, the intro itself was pretty weird. And I was a bit put off, but then the surfing just blew my mind. It reminded me of Clay Marzo's bit in Quicksilver Moments. So I watched it, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it again. Yeah, that's my what to watch this week. Awesome. Harrison? Yeah, as you said, Harry, a lot of serious edits dropped over the last week or so, so it was pretty hard to pick one. But I chose Dream Bars, this edit that features Nat Young and Clohand, you know, I'm pretty sure surfing around California, NorCal specifically. Yeah, it's, it's all around Santa Cruz, isn't it? Yeah, just beautiful, big, offshore, clean barrels, and also just really fun-looking waves in general. And the whole second half is... The two of them and some friends surfing one of the most fun-looking left-hand barrels I've ever seen. It's it's like this nice roll-in takeoff to a shelving reforming slab, and it's yeah, 
was really cool, cool edit to watch. Looked fun. Looked like a place that I want to go visit. Like the waves yeah. in the San Fran area looked I've amazing. Never gotten waves like that in Santa Cruz. Really? Yeah. I loved Julian Wilson's new edit, Wayward. Just really reminds you why he's you know one of the best surfers to ever not win a world title. He, he just has everything. I've, I think I've watched the edit three times now, and each time it just gets better. Very cool. Yeah, I, he is a very well-rounded surfer, isn't he? He's, he's one of those guys that can pull off all the high-performance surfing, but he does good on rail surfing, good barrel rider. That's one of the things I've been working on while we've been filming this week is a thumb down on backhand turns. It's Julian Wilson that does that, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he goes for the thumb down. I'm going to throw one just little bonus edit, and I'm going to do a Will Forster and bring two to the table, but I really did enjoy this. Great clip of some high-performance finless surfing from a guy called Ari Brown out in Bali, and he's surfing one of the, uh, one of the rabbit's foot boards and shredding on it. Yeah, he's high-performance finless surfing. Yeah, very, very cool. Right, that is all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and please do uh, get in touch. If you have any, uh, any questions or any feedback, you can get hold of me through podcast at surfsimply.com. Uh, you can get hold of Tommy. Uh, at Tommy Potterton on Instagram or Twitter. There we go. Harrison. At Harrison Avery on Instagram. And Asher. At King Asher. At King on Asher. Instagram. There we go. Or Twitter. Or Twitter. Uh, aren't you King underscore Asher? King underscore Asher. There we go. We don't want to send people to the wrong Asher. Exactly. I get a lot of tags from the wrong Asher. <laughs> but it's always the other way around. It's always somebody looking for their friend yeah. who's King Asher with no underscore. Uh, there we go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.